Megan Schmidt, and welcome to this episode of our 2021 Precision Farming Dealer Podcast Series. In today's podcast, we talk with Kirk Blades, Senior Vice President of Agriculture and Forestry with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. If this is your first time joining us, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and Spotify. And a reminder that by subscribing, you'll be able to get alerts when upcoming episodes in the series are released. According to a study on precision agriculture conducted by the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, the American Soybean Association, CropLife America, and the National Corn Growers Association, the environmental benefits of precision agriculture technology, fuel efficiencies, is similar to taking 200,000 cars off the road every year. In today's Precision Farming Dealer podcast, we take a closer look at the study, which was done for a broader audience outside of agriculture, and how the findings can help educate lawmakers and others on how precision agriculture could lead to a boom in sustainable, more environmentally friendly agriculture. I talked with Kurt Blades, AEM Senior Vice President of Agriculture and Forestry, about how the study was conducted, what some of their key findings were, and how they broke that down in terms that people outside of ag will understand. I guess to start off, can you um, just kind of explain a little bit kind of what led to you know, AEM, American Soybean Association, Crop Life, and National Corn Growers Association, and kind of taking on the study? Really, this study came about at the request of our members who had um, asked us the question, I think probably three years ago now, um, because they were getting questions from their stakeholders and shareholders. Okay. Wanted to say, hey, we know that there are environmental benefits to auto guidance. I mean, it just, it's logic tells you there's going to be, you know, an environmental benefit. We know there's a fuel savings there. And then, you know, it, it does the, do the numbers exist anywhere? And really what we kind of found after doing a little bit of digging is that they didn't. Um, everybody has done a ton of work. There's been a ton of work done on the economic benefits and certainly the economic benefits to farmers uh, of precision agriculture. And like those of us that are, uh, you know, involved in the industry, um, we, you know, we know that those environmental benefits are there. We just haven't ever quantified it. And nobody else has either. So this whole thing came about with really just trying to quantify those numbers so we can, frankly, get credit with those that are, um, you know, outside of our industry, get credit for the work that we're already doing. Okay. So the plan, the initial plan was to release this as part of uh, – of a uh, National Ag Day on the mall in 2020 when we were going to be having uh, uh, farm equipment on the mall for National Ag Day. And the pandemic kind of put uh, a change in those plans. And so we released it uh, virtually and then have been have a, had a chance to, because that time frame changed just a little bit, uh, we had a chance to, to really open this up to all kinds of stakeholders before we actually released the study. So when you look at the the, the the presentation that you see to today, obviously we have we have named partners of National Corn Growers Association, American Soybean Association, CropLife America, but we have sort of a collection of unnamed partners that really helped us shape what the dialogue would look like, you know, verify the numbers. And so we spent about a year sort of pre-releasing this data, socializing the data to make sure everybody was comfortable with it. Okay. And what that allowed us to do is when we officially released the study earlier this year, we already had the support from 
you know, some in the environmental committee, certainly those producer groups that we mentioned, as well as other groups that are impacted by this technology. And that's really proved incredibly beneficial in telling the story to those aren't outside of agriculture. And then what were um, kind of some of the key findings you guys found in the study? Well, well the, the key findings, um, I mean, again, as we say, some of these things are obvious, um, such as you know, precision agriculture is beneficial uh, in fuel savings and water savings and carbon reduction. Uh, you can go down the list, uh, active ingredient reduction. Uh, those, those, are, those were obvious. What we were surprised with, though, frankly, was some of the, the, the pieces that have been the, the, the most well-received were things that we weren't expecting to be as well-received as they were. And that is things like, you know, the clean definitions of what is auto guidance, what okay. is machine section control, what is variable rate technology. And why, why that surprised us is that, again, you, those of us in the industry, when you hear the word precision agriculture, you have an idea in your head what it means mm-hmm. uh, because we're, we, we live it. Uh, but those that are not in the industry, when they hear it, you know, they, they think of a lot of different things. And so when we came up with sort of common definitions, and a lot of groups have, have worked towards common definitions for it, but they've also been very focused in on, you know, the industry itself. We, we worked closely with those same organizations to create common definitions that were external definitions. So early into the study, we talked about what is auto guidance? What does it mean? Uh, what does fleet, uh, machine and fleet analytics, what does that mean? In very simple terms that are consumer uh, terms, not ag terms. And that proved to be incredibly effective when communicating to environmental groups and policymakers uh, who hear the term precision agriculture, but don't necessarily know what it means. Okay. So that was kind of the most interesting thing early on was where the where the interest was. Uh, the other thing that I found was was incredibly interesting was sort of again this is sharing the sharing the facts was how many folks were you know, really had no idea uh, had no idea uh, and it's, you know, I'm talking about non ag people had right. no idea that that this technology was so prevalent today uh, that the adoption rates in some areas were as high as they are. Uh, and had no, had no idea what the savings were. Yeah. So those were two really big aha moments that have been fun, and, and what that leads to is really a, a, a you know spark of curiosity that we get. We talked with someone from EPA about auto guidance. They get really excited because then they're then they begin to to think about what you know what comes next and how do we how do we continue to uh, to stoke this fire of precision agriculture encourage adoption uh, that, that uh, of the tools that really certainly benefit farmers economically but boy when when put together have a really nice societal benefit as well yeah yeah definitely that's something that's always been interesting to me as we talk with you know various people in in our group we'll, you know we're talking with like analysts and things like that and they'll often ask us you know they their clients have questions about like the adoption of precision ag and how that's going to change things and we always struggle to answer it because to us we you know we're talking about it every day so I'm always like well it's here already you know it's it's a very new thing still to the broader world even though we've all been talking about it for over a decade so that's always been absolutely interesting 
It is interesting, and even in, even within the farm community. I mean, you're you're in Wisconsin. I'm in I'm in Wisconsin and Iowa in the Midwest, and we see precision ag every day because we live it. We you know it works really well for row crop farms, and the adoption rates are pretty high. But there are also still pockets of of ag production here in the United States and around the world where it's not as prevalent. And so again, I think it's it's very important for us to you know those of us here in agriculture, certainly your listeners, to continue to remember that that. Although we see it every day, sometimes you got to boil it back down to the simplest level for those that are not exceeding it every day to to recognize this cool factor that's out there in you know precision ag, but also that that uh, you know adoption in some cases is you know well over fifty percent, and in other crops it's it's pretty slow right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. I should have asked this before I asked you about the key findings, but kind of what was you know what did the study entail, and kind of what how did you set up you know, what you were doing. Well, this, this is, uh, you know, not to sound too, uh, too technical or use trendy words here, but <laughs> this essentially is a, is a meta study okay. uh, or a study of studies. So we're, you know, we, we partnered with the context network uh, to, to do this and, and where their expertise lies is bringing in, um, you know, sort of um, best in class, you know, content and best in class experts from around the globe. So we started with, you know, sort of, uh, you know, think of it like a, a thesis where you start with a lit review. What's already been done? What research has already been done uh, out there on this particular topic? And as I mentioned, you know, before, a lot of this research is really good on the economic front. Mm-hmm. And there are pockets of environmental studies. There were pockets of environmental studies by, you know, certain universities here and there. But there weren't anything that was that comprehensive. So we started with a lit review, and basically that created uh, sort of a grid of where are the holes. You know, if we can if we can come up with a you know sort of good, better, best. So a uh, the best situation would be if we if there was existing third party research indicating a particular quantifiable number. That's what we wanted, and in some cases we had those in this grid of the missing data. And the then the uh, the next best case was if it didn't exist by third party, who are some of the, you know, sort of well-known industry experts that we can get in a room and come to a consensus with a particular number. So that's sort of the, that's sort of the, uh, the, the mid range. And then if we weren't able to do that, then we also had, you know, some trusted advisors uh, that, that were able to sort of go into their individual company uh, data and, and point to what, you know, numbers that they're using. Uh, and and so what we are are working towards, and we built this entire model off of sort of a framework that as new data comes in, as the data gets better, as better third party data comes in, we can plug it into our model and use that to uh, to impact you know the, the the future future versions of this particular study. So that's how it started with sort of creating this model that looked at you know the the. Uh, all of the benefits that we were that we were we were working with, and the uh, the benefits that we looked at first were productivity gains, fertilizer usage, herbicide usage, fossil fuel usage, and water usage. Okay. Now, note that carbon is not mentioned in that initially. And the funny story on that is that you know farmers are true environmentalists. So mm-hmm. you know when when and, and they get that. You know, the environment involves all of the things that I mentioned before, uh, with the best thing you can do for the environment is produce more. 
uh, with less resources. Uh, when you talk to the environmental community, uh, and certainly those that are on the periphery of the environmental community, and certainly the uh, the, the the lawmakers and and uh, uh, elected officials, when they speak environment, the language that they always boil it down to is carbon, mm-hmm. carbon reduction or or carbon savings. And uh, you know, we made the decision to not use carbon in our initial calculation because we didn't want that to overshadow what you know many farmers will say is the true true benefit. Now we've in in since you know, version, version two of this, we included carbon numbers. But what has been a really interesting conversation is that uh, you can talk with environmentalists that have been in the, in the business for a very long time, and they get that conversation. If you talk with folks that are, are following, you know, environmental trends over the last two years, their laser focused on on carbon, but what we tried to do specifically was focus in on what are what are the benefits, the the, the bigger benefits. And certainly, there's carbon savings, but the biggest benefits are you know efficiency, efficiencies in production. And if you produce you know 20% more crop on the same amount of land, which is logical, you're using less input, mm-hmm. less input of active ingredients of herbicides, less or insecticides, less. Uh, a less herbicide or potentially, you know, better applied herbicide. And then, you know, your productivity goes up. So your fossil fuels go down, your water usage goes down. So that was where the, the driver of, uh, of this entire study ended up, became a really fascinating story. So when you look at the gain and even isolating specifically the gains in productivity that have come from precision ag, that's been pretty eye-opening for all of us, uh, all of us that are involved in production agriculture, obviously on the crop production side, but those of us on the equipment side, it's pretty, pretty fun to look back and say, hey, 4% of the gains over the last 20 years are directly related to satellites in the field, our satellites in the sky being able to, uh, to, to move the tractors in the field. That's pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, and that has pretty cool. tremendous implications um, you know, in, in terms of you know, what, what the impact is. And one of the, um, I guess, benefits that you guys talked about in the, the news release that you put out about the study was precision irrigation and kind of what that means, particularly right now with the, you know, extreme drought we've got going on in the West. Um, I mean, even here in the Midwest, we're in drought as well, or at least in the part of the Midwest I'm in, we're in a drought as well. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the precision irrigation side of things, how that, you know, ties in and what that could mean for kind of alleviating some of this drought pressure? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting, uh, interesting question, Kim, because our, our first version of this, when we thought precision irrigation, we were thinking, you know, truly, you know, GPS driven, you know, hands off, uh, you know, farmer hands off uh, irrigation systems. It's, that's uh, uh, allowing, you know, the right amount of water in specific parts of the field. And certainly that technology is there and it's got some adoption, but the adoption is, is certainly not, not widespread with that particular piece. What we frankly found when we, when we got into this and talking with our friends uh, in, in the irrigation circles, um, no pun intended, uh, is that really the, the largest gains in irrigation today, the easiest gains are sensors and putting sensors in the ground. Um, where, you know, basically, you know, a farmer moving from watering their crops based off of the time of day or driving past it or, or, or the day of the week, uh, and instead, you know, looking at the soil or looking beneath the soil to figure out what the soil moisture is. And the water savings are significant. 
uh, the water savings are significant. And even more importantly, the fuel savings are significant because you're not having to run those, run those motors when, when the, when the, when the crop doesn't have to necessarily be, uh, be watered. And so it's one of those situations of knowledge is power. Now, how does yeah. this relate to the drought? I mean, I think where you, where you look at, uh, you know, let's, let's talk about Nebraska and Kansas where the aquifer is under a whole lot of pressure because of, because of irrigation. Now, I think we all, we all know, we hear from lots of different folks that there's going to be pressure on those of us that are accessing water and accessing uh, the aquifers to uh, to be very smart about how we apply water to the ground, and you know that that has and, and when you have a drought like you're dealing with in in Wisconsin right now, or northern Iowa, or other parts of the country, that you know more attention is given to that, and also the, the situation gets a little bit more you know it gets a little bit more dicey. Mm-hmm. So the more we can apply water in the most responsible way path, uh, possible. Uh, the, the least amount of water to grow the most amount of crop, that's good for everybody. I mean, obviously, that's good for the environment. That's good for water conservation. But it's pretty darn good for the farmer, too, especially if we're having to pay a little bit more for water or, if nothing else, having to pay to get that water out of the ground or get from its source. That's a good thing if we can be smart about where we apply water. Right. So really just applying the water when the water's needed, not based on like you said, the time of day or the day of the week or just whatever somewhat superficial schedule we've created for it. Yeah. Or, or, or even based on, you know, again, going, going deeper into the field, going deeper into the soil and uh, recognizing that there's particular spots of the field that are wet and particular spots that are dry. I mean, that's just, that's just good things. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's good for the farmer. And it's one of the things we, we wouldn't have had the ability to do, you know, certainly didn't have the ability to do 50 years ago, let alone 10 years ago with the amount of sensors and those connected sensors and devices. It's just amazing what we can do today because of all of that and because of, you know, wireless technology and, and all of the things that come with it. We'll get back to the discussion shortly, but first a word from Trimble Agriculture. This series features perspectives from precision experts on a range of topics, and today we have some insights from Jordan Wallace, Sales and Advanced Solutions Technician at Trimble Dealer GPS Ontario, on TeamViewer, a technology Trimble implements that allows remote access, saving farmers and dealers significant time. So in, in kind of a day and age where so many of us are, are working remotely, can you talk a little bit about how you guys are helping farmers in that capacity? Yeah, so I think geographically our dealer network with or our dealer uh, distribution with Trimble covers all of Ontario so I could physically drive 16 hours and not get to the end of my sales territory wow so coming up with uh, new ways of helping customers you know with remote support was definitely needed Um, I remember in in I want to say it was 2008 I had a customer in Sarnia. So Ottawa to Sarnia is, it's a good eight hour drive. And I left at three in the morning. I got on site and I was only there for six minutes. And then I turned around and I drove home. So you start looking at a 16 And that's all you were able to do that day. Yeah, exactly. And you're, you know, the, the invoice went to the customer and he said, you were only here for five minutes. Why am I paying $2,000? And 
And I said, well, I left at three in the morning and I got home at two 30 in the morning. Like it was a big day. Yeah. And that was when we started looking for some better options, right? So we started using uh, some remote assistant tools even before Trimble adopted TeamViewer, but now with TeamViewer being on the screens, it's way easier. Um, even this morning I, I was logged into two different screens. Uh, I'm working from home today and, and you know, I've, I've got two service techs in the field doing service calls, but, but I can't drive six or seven hours to fix a scenario and then turn around and drive back. Right. 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 Can you tell me a little bit more about um, what Trimble's team viewer is um, and you know, what exactly, what it is exactly and how farmers can access it, how dealers access it, things like that. Yes. Yeah, so TeamViewer is an app that Trimble has has given access to on any of their newer generation screens. So anything that's running their Android platform uh, for the the hardware, so the GFX series displays and the TMX 2050. The uh, app is accessible when you create a an, an internet connection. So I've got a few guys that just create a hotspot on their phone. Uh, then we can log in in the background. So. TeamViewer quick support allows us to physically see what is on the screen. And then in some of the newer displays, it actually allows us to push the buttons and, and either set up, configure, or calibrate those, those displays remotely. Anywhere I've got an internet connection, anywhere that the farmer's got an internet connection. Oh, um, any of the displays where the customers are running the integrated cellular modems, then they don't have to create a hotspot. It's, it's already there. Um, the process to activate the app is actually very, very simple. Um, they basically just go back to the main home Android screen, open up the app and over the phone, they'll just read off the 10 digit access code to us. Um, on our laptops, we open up the team viewer app and just type that 10 digit access code in. And then when we hit the connect button, it'll pop up on the growers uh, screen and it would say, you know, Jordan, I'd like to connect to your display. Do you want to allow or deny that access? And as soon as they hit the allow button, then we have the ability to, uh, to see exactly what they see. Oh, that's great. There's no more guesswork at that point, right? It's, uh, you know, the, the old service call used to be, okay, well, the top right corner, go to the wrench and then from the wrench, go to autopilot and then go to calibrate. And then no, no, don't hit that button, hit the calibrate button, not diagnostics. And the two buttons are side by side. And you were always trying to figure out, you know, what screen that, that customer was on, right? You're always trying to figure out, did he hit the button that you told him to, or, or is it farmer syndrome and they hit the button underneath it. And, uh, it, it made it very challenging to provide that service and the support to, to keep that customer going. Right. Right. Because in so a lot I mean, of cases, they're already, they're already frustrated. They've already spent 20 or 30 minutes before they called you trying to figure it out on their own. Yeah. And now they just have no patience. Right. And, and it's probably equally as frustrating on the dealer's side of it saying, no, not that button, this button and trying to. Yeah. Not, not seeing what each other are seeing necessarily to talk each other through it. Yeah. We haven't got to the ability to, to physically log into that person's brain and see what, through their eyes, what they're, <laughs> what they're seeing yet. So eventually. Yet. Someday Maybe we'll one day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you, you touched on on the challenges a little bit, um, you know, between just the trying to talk them through it and then even the having to drive eight hours to, to visit someone. Were there any other um, challenges you were seeing before, you know, the technology existed 
And then, you know, how has TeamViewer helped resolve some of those issues? So even, even just the technology difference on, on the apps and, and being able to log in or the remote support, one of the biggest issues that we have is retraining our customers. And it's not about training them about the display or the service or the technology side of things. It's retraining them that even the remote support is billable. So if a customer for us doesn't want to pay for a phone support, you know, we, we actually invoice out by the minute when we're providing a support call, uh, whether I log in with TeamViewer or, or whether I just do it remotely over the phone. Mm -hmm. It's a really simple one. We'll just, you know, go here, push these three buttons and you know, you're ready to go. And what we tried to relate that back to the customer is I can either fix it over the phone with you and it costs you $3 and 50 cents, or I can drive four and a half hours. You can pay the travel time as well as the four minutes that I'm on site, but that'll be billed out by the hour because I had to physically get there. And they don't, a lot of the customers didn't understand that at the beginning. And it was a big hurdle that we had to get over. Right. And, and don't seem to understand that they probably would be saving themselves money. Yeah. Well, they would be not probably they are, they would be saving money to do it over the phone or the yeah. and, and lost productivity of a, of a farmer out in the field and in a planting season is, is not, you know, $30 an hour. It's like right. $300 an hour and having the ability to log in directly into those screens and fix that customer within a few minutes. Um, that's, that's a big, big game changer for this industry. You yeah. Know, with a you... territory and su support size, the, the way we are, the customer database that we have, um, you know, we're servicing 800 to a thousand customers across Ontario right now, probably more than that. Mm -hmm. And we just can't physically drive. I don't have enough manpower on the road. Right. Okay. Would you say that's the um, minority of customers who just don't want to do it? Who don't want, who want someone to come out still versus pay the. Oh, it's a very, very support. small percentage. Okay. Very small percentage. It took us a while to actually train that customer data, like that customer base though, to, to understand that that was the reality, right? Mm -hmm. We provide a year of service with, or, or phone support with every system that we sell. And if they don't buy another one next year, well, then they're going to pay for that service for the following service contract. And it's, it's just that mindset. And we as dealers, you know, whether it's a Trimble dealer or, or uh, another dealer have to get into that habit of, of starting to train and, and educate that, that customer that, you know, this is the way it is. Right. Um, it's, it's huge. It's a big revenue model for our, our business. Oh, I, I bet. Yeah. It's definitely something that I know dealers are trying to figure out how to, how to do it and how to get their customers to accept it. And yep. And the tools to automate it are very expensive. Mm -hmm. We've spent a lot of time doing that and had, had some growing pains through it. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it, it's worth every, every dollar we've spent. Um, yeah. cause it, uh, April, April 15th to June 1st is basically our planting window up here. And there's days where you're answering between 400 and 500 phone calls and you don't have time to make notes on what that call is. Right. 
you just need to know that at the end of the day, when I, uh, if I have a sales call that I'm not going to be billing for that, that's the, the call that I have to log that, okay, this was a sales call. So that customer doesn't get an invoice for trying to buy something. Because <laughs> <laughs> that could be a whole new problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, having the ability to log into the screens with TeamViewer though, has really given us uh, some new tools in our tool chest to, to kind of keep those growers going. Um, farmers are, are not the, the, best at explaining what they see. Uh, so the, the diagnostic tools that Trimble have put in place in the background with the newer displays, uh, we can see what their autopilot performance is while they're planting corn. Okay. And, you know, there's, there's ways of seeing how many satellites they have and what connection they have. Um, you know, is it an antenna issue? Is it a, is it a autopilot issue? Diagnose the problems and then overnight ship the replacement parts. Um, depending on who or where that customer is is located, right? Uh, there's been scenarios where you know we have we have parts across Ontario at, at certain customers, and hey, this this customer that's only 15 minutes from you has the cable that you need sitting on their shelf. So just pop over there, grab it real quick, or send somebody to pick it up. I'll give them a call and let them know you're on your way, and you're up and running in an hour. And that's been been big as well. Let's get back to the program and hear more from Kurt on some of the other findings the study revealed. So that was one of the areas that maybe kind of changed in doing the study, changed how, how you guys were thinking about it. Was there anything else in either, you know, the fertilizer use, herbicide use productivity or the fuel savings that kind of caused you to switch your thinking on it or that surprised you? Well, I think when we talk about fertilizer usage is a great example of when you look at actual fertilizer tonnage, it hasn't gone down dramatically as a result of precision agriculture. Mm-hmm. There's been some areas of the of the nation where it's gone down. There's been some where it's gone up. But what we can say unequivocally is that precision ag has led to more efficient use of fertilizer. And that's great. Uh, so if you're Fertilizing, I mean, obviously, fertilizer has gone up in price over the last few years, so we want to make sure that we're smart about it. And I don't think any farmer wants to apply, you know, MPRK in a, in a part of the field that doesn't need it. Mm-hmm. So if we know where to fertilize at a variable rate, that's a really good thing. Uh, it may not necessarily reduce the amount of total fertilizer that we apply, but it means that we're applying the right amount at the right time at the right rate. And that leads to more productivity. The other thing that Precision Ag allows us to do, and it certainly as it relates to the fertilizer piece, is if you think of um, a lot of attention on environmentalists uh, to to the livestock sector, and you know in Wisconsin where you're from, and you've got a lot of if you have if you have cattle in a concentrated cattle in a concentrated area. You know, there's there is waste that comes from that. That waste has a tremendous amount of nutritional uh, nutrient value to the soil. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, when I was growing up, we just throw you know throw it onto the soil, and that and that leads to a a more productive crop. Certainly, still does that. But man, when you recognize the true nutritional value of that manure waste, and recognizing you know the specific makeup of that and the specific you know deficiencies that you may have on a field, you can take the application of of, uh, of manure waste 
and apply it to the field with the same level of precision as you would with, uh, you know, any other types of fertilizer. So that becomes really exciting. And that's a, that's a fantastic story to tell as sort of, you know, the, the, the green circular economy and talking with, you know, environmentalists that are not necessarily familiar with how crops and livestock are grown. You tell that story, they get it, they love it right away. And it really tells puts farmers in a positive light. Does that help kind of change some of the like runoff narrative that's out there um, by, you know, saying that this manure, it can be applied with precision and, you know, where, where it's needed, not just everywhere. Um, does that, exactly. that help with that? Okay. It ab- absolutely does. Again, you know, why, why does runoff happen? Well, maybe there's too much water. Maybe there was too much nutrient in one particular part. So if we can apply it where it's needed, it doesn't run off. Same way with uh, with water usage. If we apply the correct amount of water, it gets used rather than rather than running off or, or leaching somewhere else. So yeah, absolutely, that's part of the story, and that story resonates well with with folks that uh, that are concerned about this. All right, um, and then one of the other areas that came up was um, the whole issue of rural broadband and how that you know is needed for the rest of this to sort of happen. Um, can you talk a little bit about how those two things tie in together and kind of where things stand today? Well, I, you know, one thing that uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, what's, what's great about this particular study and the conversations that we've been able to have with folks is that everyone says, well, this is great. Now what? How, how do we make this happen? And, and the first answer we said, you got to have rural broadband. And it's not just uh, you know, fiber to anchor institutions like li- like uh, uh, libraries and schools, uh, or even a, even a farm office. It's wireless in field, and that conversation has been really fascinating to talk to people. Like, how much technology is actually sitting on the shelf that allows you know us to even uh, ad- advance this message even further? But you know, manufacturers simply can't release it because the wireless broadband is not uh, there today. The infrastructure is not there. And that's been a really interesting conversation. And you talk about, you know, the infrastructure uh, bills that are going through the House and the Senate right now, and certainly in many of the states have been looking at it as well. Rural broadband is front and center in each one of those conversations. And I think you can point to a number of reasons why those are there. One is the pandemic pointed out the uh, rural-urban divide on digital, uh, mm-hmm. I think that became pretty obvious, and that's been really, you know, a, I guess a silver lining of a pandemic. But you know, I'll I'll uh, also say is that the ag industry has been very uh, uh, loud with anyone that will listen to talk about how wireless in field is needed for precision ag adoption. And I'll credit this study for changing the uh, the hearts and minds of some of those folks uh, that are writing those bills to say it's not just to the anchor institutions and the houses, but it's also wireless in the field. And they're listening because they recognize that there's a bigger societal gain if you have that wireless in the field like, uh, like we want. And that allows for all kinds of things to happen after that. Okay. That's great. Yeah. And just that what what infrastructure means today is very different than what it meant even probably 10 years ago, but certainly 40 or 50 years ago. You bet. You bet. All right. 
Um, and then was were you able to, you know, determine anything from from the study in terms of what kind of the adoption rate among farmers is in using precision technology in their operations? You know, we we actually part of the study was a pretty good assessment of adoption rates in various regions based on various crops. So we actually have quite a quite a bit of uh, of data on that. Now, and we have available to, to share with folks what we you know is the 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 drawback of creating a a study where you're trying to put something into today's society of 148 characters you have to come up with an average and you know the average adoption rate of precision agriculture in you know uh, the midwest uh big row crop fields it's pretty high i mean we're seeing auto auto steer you know, in somewhere in the, you know, in the 60 to 80 percent. Those are great numbers. If you go, you know, a little further south where there are, uh, you know, a few more hills and smaller fields, you don't, you don't see it that much. But when creating national policy and when having conversations with environmentalists, both here in the United States as well as around the world, they speak in averages. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we talk about, you know, we always try to say, you know, the, the uh, the adoption rate varies by crop, and you know it's somewhere between thirty and thirty and eighty percent, uh, depending on the region and the crop. But we feel like full adoption could be about eighty percent. And so our study looks at both current adoption of precision agriculture, and that's kind of divided up by all these crops. But then we also put the promise out there of if full adoption happens this much more gain is right around the corner. And so I like to focus in certainly the current adoption. There's a lot of things that factor into that. Obviously the availability of, of the equipment, uh, there's economic factors, there's, you know, uh, you know, the utility factor, I mentioned size of the fields, things like that. Uh, they also had to, you know, the reality is ag market's been a little soft the last five years. Right. So when we see commodity prices come back, back like they have a little bit, I would expect adoption to continue to push forward. But the other piece that we say, you know, pretty pretty plainly is, you know, if if there are incentives out there in other industries to promote environmentally positive practices, farming and agriculture should be part of that conversation as well. So we are we are big advocates at, advocates of us getting credit for precision agriculture, um, you know, receiving those same incentives. So give it, give a farmer a chance to update their technology so they can take advantage of this. That makes it a, a little bit more economically viable for them. And it's good for society as well. Right. So I think that's where, you know, all this, these adoption percentage numbers come into play. That story resonates well because they look at, Hey, you know, if you're going to, you know, reward a a factory for putting LED lights in their in their factory. Um, probably should consider rewarding a farmer for adopting tractors that drive themselves and apply you know fertilizer and and uh, crop protection chemicals in a very specific manner. Okay. Was was there anything in the study that like you know pointed to or was like tied together the precision technology with you know kind of what their practices that they use. So whether they were um, using conventional tillage, were a no-till operation, were using strip till in some areas, anything like that? Yeah, we, we didn't get into into production practices so much okay. uh, because, you know, we're trying to, be, trying to be average and that gets, 
also a little bit into the uh, some of the aspects that are get increasingly difficult to explain to an environmentalist. Right. But what I what we do regularly say is that precision agriculture allows for broader adoption and adoption at scale of some of the tillage practices that would be considered, you know, less invasive to the soil and promote better soil health than would have ever been available without the use of precision agriculture. Okay. So when you can farm down to the inch, there's a whole lot of things that you can do with managing the fertility, but also you can do a whole lot with cover crops that you couldn't do before. I mean, you think cover crops work really well when the rows are straight. Uh, you can't really have straight rows without uh, precision agriculture. So you go through all of those types of things. You, you know, I think you'd say that precision agriculture is an enabler mm-hmm. to do a lot of other things that, that maybe um, – wouldn't have uh, been practical or certainly wouldn't be practical at scale without tractors that can drive themselves. That makes sense. And then, um, you know, in looking at at the study, you know, auto guidance, variable rate section control seem to be some of the technologies referenced throughout a lot of it. Um, How did, you know, those those different technologies compare in, in what you were studying? I think what you have to look at is like the variable rate and section control and even, you know, going step, you know, one step further to the technologies that we didn't talk about. They're just right around the corner that involve that artificial intelligence and individual weed identification. Mm-hmm. Those are all technologies that are pretty awesome. And again, you think about, you know, how this can reduce the amount of active ingredients. I mean, it's just sort of logical. It makes, makes a lot of sense. But the one thing we have to be, you know, just like crystal clear on is that it's all, it's it, it's all made possible by you know uh, a machine knowing where it is in the field and knowing what in each individual crop looks like. So yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'm exactly answering your question, but I think what is what is um, you know sort of fascinating is that you know early on early early uh, technologies were as simple as you know is it an on or an off. You know, are we spraying at this particular spot? Are we not spraying at this particular spot? You know, section control. And that and that technology is pretty, I, I don't want to say easy because it's really difficult to do, but it's easy to understand. Variable rate, also pretty easy to understand. But when you think about the, um, you know, the actual execution of it, it gets a little bit more difficult. I mean, does that mean that you're changing the... Uh, the seed spacing as you're going through the field, you're, spa- you're, you're changing the velocity at which, uh, you know, a crop is sprayed as it goes through the field or, or uh, for fertilizer supply, you change the velocity based off of each indi- individual spot. I mean, that's, in theory, that sounds really easy in practice as you sort of think it through. It gets, it gets pretty complicated. But those are all really exciting things. Uh, you add one more layer to that and, you know, that velocity and that, that rate uh, being tied to, you know, the yield map, that gets pretty exciting, but that's based off of zones. Man, you think what's right around the corner of that same velocity and and rate or on-off even uh, being applied to an individual crop because a sensor indicated that that particular crop has some weed pressure? Mm-hmm. Man, that's pretty fun. And yeah. and uh, that, that technology is right around the corner. Well, it's available today or it's it's proven today. It's just not proven at scale yet, but we're, we're on the cusp of it coming out here and being pretty cool stuff for us to look at. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be exciting the next few years, I think. I think so. so. Well, you know, you can talk about this. I'd not to inter- interrupt you, but you know, oh, the ground right. shift is what was fun and, and 
in ag for the last 20 years, all of the energy, you know, 25 years, 30 years now, uh, all of the energy has all been around uh, you know, genetic advancements. And there have been tremendous genetic advancements that allow us to you know, have, have significant increases in yield and corn, soybean, and other crops. It's been, tre- been tremendous. That led to you know, tremendous gains. It led to some you know, farmers being a whole lot more efficient, led to a lot of things that have been fun in the industry to watch. But that center of gravity has shifted. That center of gravity is shifting from genetics being at the center of that all those gains to the technology, the physical technology being at the center of all those gains. And I say your your listeners are right at the center of that. So it's pretty fun to say that all of these gains are we're going to see in the next twenty years as it relates to uh, uh, production agriculture are going to have a whole lot to do with the machine themselves and the adoption of technology that uh, certainly takes advantage of the genetics, certainly takes advantage of advancements in fertilizer and crop protection, but the application of it, you know, through the, through the physical way that it, it, it's, uh, it's applied, that's where the gains are coming from. And I'll tell you what, it's pretty fun to be a part of that right now. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely very exciting. Would you say so then the kind of target of, of the whole study in general is, is to that general population or the elected officials and people in the EPA and people like that who are, are making these decisions and implementing kind of some of these rules that we will see coming um, to help spread the word to them, kind of change their view of things? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. The, 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 the stated, stated audience for this has been the public. Okay. And you know, obviously, we like to talk to farmers as well. But we talk about, but when we design this for farmers, we're very clear. It's like, you're not the intended audience. You are looking at this to be armed with this information to share to people that are not farmers. Right. So we wrote, we wrote the examples and easy to, easy to, uh, to digest and sometimes playful, you know, conversations. Like, uh, one of the, one of the things we say is that, you know, productivity has increased an estimated 4% as a result of precision ag- adoption over the last 20 years. And that is the equivalent of 10.2 million acres being avoided uh, or four and a half Yellowstone National Parks not being tilled because productivity is, has, uh, has increased. And you put those in those terms that, that a non-farmer gets, you know, their eyes open right up. It's pretty right. fun. And another, one we, another one we used was... Uh, you know, taking a look at at uh, water as an example. You know, the application. You know, using precision irrigation, we avoided seven hundred and fifty thousand Olympic swimming pools just because we put sensors in the ground, or because of auto guidance and fleet telematics, we saved a hundred million gallons of fossil fuels, or the equivalent of one hundred ninety three thousand cars taken off the road in fuel savings alone. Yeah, those, those are- numbers matter. Yeah. Those are great examples too, because I mean, like, I can't picture how much water, however many millions of gallons that was that you said, you know, like, but that many pool, like I can picture one Olympic size pool, 700 and whatever it was, you know, that's, that's a crazy amount. And, you know, four and a half Yellowstone National Parks. Okay. Now I'm, that's serious land. Now. Exactly. And what's cool about all those things, Kim, and this is the greatest story that I love telling when talking about precision agriculture, farmers adopted this because it made sense to them. Mm-hmm. They 
the the environmental benefits or a ride along. That wasn't their primary driver. Their primary driver because it made sense to it made sense for a farmer to have a tractor that steers in a straight line and doesn't overlap. But boy, the environmental benefits of as a as an add along, that story resonates very well. Yeah. Well we have covered everything that I was hoping to talk about. Anything that we might have missed that was kind of a, a key finding or um you know, something about how you're, you know, getting this out to the public? Well I mentioned I mentioned uh the first version of this didn't include carbon uh, yes. CO2 emissions. And then we had, we, then we updated it, uh, to include carbon emissions because, you know, frankly, uh, because of, you know, some of those discussions that are happening in DC right now. Uh, and so what we were able to do is take all of these things together. So you take auto guidance, section control, variable technology, fleet telematics, and you, you couple that with more productive land use, reduced herbicide use, re, uh, better, uh, fertilizer efficiency, reduce water use, reduce fossil fuel consumption. We put all of those together to create sort of some crazy numbers as it relates to the amount of carbon that has simply been avoided because of the current adoption of precision agriculture. And the number we came up with was 10.1 million metric tons have been avoided as a result of adoption of precision agriculture. And to put that in perspective, that's 2.2, that's the equivalent of 2.2 million passenger vehicles. So when you throw a number like that out, people's jaws drop. And then you back it up with the facts. And that's why agriculture is part of these conversations about being part of the solution for, you know, the, some of the, some of the challenges that, uh, that our, that our planet is facing. Yeah. And what is really fun is that we talk about this in a positive way, not farmers are the farmers are the enemy. Farmers are the solution and precision ag is the solution. And that's a lot of fun. Those are completely different conversations than we were having five years ago, uh, where arrows were being being pointed our direction of doing doing the bad things. Right. When we yeah. can tell things that we're doing right. It's pretty fun. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was just going to say when you said. It was 2.2 million passenger vehicles. I was like, okay, well, you know, the the story previously that the that others are telling is that you know, agriculture is the one that's is the largest one to blame for all of the all of the pollution and all of the problems. And this really helps show, like, you know, we're doing our part too to to make it to make things better and and avoid some of that. So that's great. You bet. You bet. So I'd encourage, I'd encourage your listeners to find this study um, and and use these facts. I mean, this is kind of our gift to the industry. I mean, if your if your listeners are involved in precision agriculture, mm-hmm. I'm sure they interact with a lot of farmers, but they interact with a lot of folks in their in their towns and, and communities that are not farmers. And being armed with these facts helps tell that story because the onus is on all of us to tell this story in a positive light that that really does make a difference in today's you know today's dialogue around the climate right yeah well this was great thank you so much i appreciate it you bet thank you kim thank you to kerf blades for sharing some details about the aem study and how dealers can share that information with their communities on the positive impacts precision ag is having on the environment I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at kschmidt at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2431. And you can keep up on the latest precision practices impacting your dealership today by registering online at precisionfarmingdealer.com for our free PFD daily e-newsletter. 
I hope that you'll join us for the next episode in our 2021 podcast series. For Kurt, as well as Trimble Agriculture and our entire staff here at Precision Farming Dealer, I'm Kim Schmidt. Thanks for listening.